Joining us today on the fourth episode of The Shift is Kat Gordon, founder and CEO of The 3%. After decades of experience as a creative advertising director, Kat became a social change entrepreneur around the issue of diversity and its relationship to creativity. She works with agencies and teaches them how to enhance their creative efforts by working on their diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Kat has received numerous accolades over the years, including Ad Colors Change Agent Award and was named the 2018 Visionary of the Year by Ad Age and one of the 40 over 40 women to watch. Kat, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to The Shift. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Okay, let's jump in. So Sean hasn't had the privilege of meeting you yet and he and I tend to to like the same folks because we tend to like very purpose, mission-driven individuals. So can you just get him a little bit up to speed on your background and how you came to pursue what is now 3%? Yes, of course. So my background is as an advertising creative director professionally, and most people have some frame of reference for that world through Mad Men. And sadly, most of the creative leaders look like Don Draper, and there are not very many Donna Drapers. And so as a female advertising creative director, I was part of only 3% of that group that were women. And it's something that bothered me, not necessarily from a camaraderie standpoint, like I want more women around me, but more from my understanding of the consumer marketplace and who's buying all the products and services that are being advertised, who's doing the social media amplification on behalf of brands. And it's women and it's multicultural women. It's really not the one archetype of a white male leader. So I got super curious about why this problem persists, given that all of the portfolio schools are graduating more young women than men. So this is not a pipeline issue and started the 3% movement to really start a conversation about why are we stuck in this place? And I'm sure I don't need to dot connect for anyone listening, but I will just in case Advertising matters because it's the most pervasive media and our young people especially are exposed to a lot of advertising and advertising really suggests kind of who's invited and what they can aspire for. And if you have one kind of creative coming up with those messages, it can be a very narrow and exclusive in a negative way, non-inclusive environment. And so that's really what got my me fired up to start a social change movement around that. Thank you for sharing that. And before we dig into the rest of the conversation, there's so many areas I want to cover in terms of culture. Can you talk a little bit about, to kind of kick us off, the intersectional approach? So how does 3% think about this from a race, ethnicity, in addition to gender? And is that something that's evolved over time or something that you really started out with that in mind? I did not. And Adam Grant always says it's important to own your own lack of knowledge. And at the time, I just thought, well, let's get more women involved. Let's really shine the spotlight. And it became clear that it was advantaging white women. And luckily enough, I had a couple people pull me aside and said, this is going to become a white women's movement unless you really understand the intersectional values. So thank you to people that do that, the people that show us things we're missing. And so that was probably about seven years ago. And we made a very, very purposeful 
effort to be more intersectional in everything we did, including our own team. And I think really the approach we took, and no one advised me to do this, it was just an instinct and it seemed to have worked, was 3% has always been showing the world the way we think it should look. I don't believe you can PowerPoint people into caring. You can use metrics to get people to have a grounding in the reality of a situation, but people's hearts and minds do not open up with logic. They open up when they have a lived experience or they feel something of discomfort in their bodies. And so by inviting people to our events and having them be completely intersectional and amazingly inspirational, people go back to their offices and it feels like they're leaving a technicolor experience and going back to black and white TV. And it just feels just not as lively and not as inspiring. And so then they get curious, well, what what happened at that event? What did I experience of myself and of others? And they draw their own conclusions that diverse perspectives bouncing up against one another creates an amazingly enlivened experience. Kat, it's great to meet you. Thanks for joining us and very excited to dig in here. Talk more about that. I'm always fascinated with folks who do more than just make noise, but actually can like operationalize solutions and drive real impact, not just talk, but actually walk. Get into the blocking and tackling of how you've actually been able to make some progress and really turn this into steps forward as opposed to just, again, noise. Yeah, it's been very much a learning experience. I mean, like I said, my background is as an advertising creative director. I'm I'm not an activist. I'm not an event organizer by my training. I always followed my instincts. I guess maybe being an advertising copywriter, it's about learning what matters to people and being persuasive with words. That's the training for a copywriter. And trying to change people's minds about something in a way uses a lot of the same skills. It's figuring out what's important to them and inviting them into conversation where they can ask rookie questions and not be shamed into silence. And we did that just from the beginning. I mean, I remember at the very beginning of 3%, we did a lot that involved men. And some people felt that that was a misstep. And like men already have the center stage. Why are you inviting them to the event? Why are they even speaking at the event? And I just, everything in my being said, gender does not equal women. It equals all sorts of people and involving men and showing them the upside of inclusion that they also benefit seemed super important. So including everyone was definitely something that we centered and valued from the very beginning. We did something that my friend Cindy Gallup calls communication through demonstration. We just kept showing the world the way we know it should look. And people were amazed at how accessible that was and how wonderful it felt. Yes, we also did some research because as I said earlier, I think it's important to measure things. You can't change what you don't measure. And then we just didn't let up. I think that that's really important. So many initiatives start and they burn out or fizzle out quickly. 3% has been around for 12 years, and this has been my full-time job for most of those years. And it's been a great privilege. It's been a lot of work, but just always looking at the ways as the issue starts to get solved, new vistas appear, new issues. I mean, think about the pandemic and what remote work has added to this conversation. These return to work scenarios that are being figured out right now by companies, they may be advantaging or disadvantaging certain communities of creatives or contributors unwittingly. 
people that are either loving working from home or feeling isolated and really missing their colleagues. And so there's so much more dialogue as this issue gets solved about what does true representation look like inside companies? What do truly healthy creative cultures look like? How do they feel? And 3% has just been at the front of this painting an optimistic picture of what's on the other side of radical inclusion. I think so much of diversity work is all about righting wrongs, which need to happen. But it's also when you open people's eyes to what the upside is, the tremendous upside for everyone, you can't help but want to be involved for 12, 15, 20 years. Thank you for that. That's helpful. It's always great to hear how people operationalize this and just knowing even the small fact that this has been your full-time job. I think when we try to apply ourselves in a smaller way from a time investment perspective, sometimes it's tough to get the commitment that takes something to the 12-year mark. I am really interested as you talk about the landscape of consumers and you've got this huge base and we know what the United States looks like in terms of our gender split and how we have folks from different backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, economic backgrounds, race, ethnicity, all of these things. So tell me what you've identified is like, why is this still happening? Like, what are some of the main contributors for the lack of creative leadership, specifically among women and people of color? Like, why is that happening when it's so obvious that the folks buying these products represent a much more diverse landscape? Yes. Such a good question because so many things we do in business are supposedly driven by logic. And then you hear things like this and think, this is ridiculous. Like, why do these problems persist? And really it does, I think the centerpiece and the answer to that is bias. You know, we have one way we've been conditioned to see or think of creative leaders and how they look. Mad Men being a great example, the archetype of the brilliant white male creative. First of all, creativity is a team sport. If you look at the teams that are winning at Cannes or any of the creative shows, it's enormous teams of people working in collaboration. It's not one individual genius. Yet we somehow, we have these archetypes that are seared into our memory. Sexual harassment, an enormous problem in the workplace. We did a study called Elephant on Madison Avenue. If you actually just put that into your search bar, it'll take you to the site lit with all of our findings. And it was devastating to see how pervasive sexual harassment is, even at the hands of clients for women in advertising. And what was remarkable when we released that was that every woman that saw it just kind of nodded knowingly. And every man that saw it was shocked, just shocked at how prevalent this problem was. Pay equity, which is something, Maria, you and I just engaged in a talk about that elsewhere. That's another huge problem. Today is Mother's Pay Equity Day, meaning mothers make 58 cents on the dollar compared to non-parents. And that's an enormous problem. And so all of these things, they're systemic, which makes them hard to dismantle. Hard, but not impossible. And I think one of the reasons why people do burn out in this work is that it's generational work. You are doing this so that your future generations can inherit a better workplace. You'll see some movement in your lifetime, but you'll also see some regression and some people that are just not wanting. Look at the people that are just mandating everyone come back to the office. That's just the only way, the command and control, I must see you, presenteeism. All of these things, are we just get so used to them, we think they're the way the world is supposed to operate. Talk more about that 
so there's there's the benefit of just shaping the type type of workplace that we want future generations our our kids to be to be a part of what's going to happen as a result of creating those those workplaces what's going to happen as a result of achieving 3%'s mission what's the business case what's been the most compelling message that you've been sharing with 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 leaders around this is why this matters to your bottom line say more about that yeah i mean what's interesting is that we never seem to be asked to build the business case for the status quo. It's just assumed that the status quo is the best business case. Yet, I am the, borrowing that. The next LP meeting I have. Isn't that <laughs> so that true? Question. Yeah, that is a, a mic drop moment. Should we end the podcast right now? We, we probably <laughs> should. It's, it's so true. Anyway, keep going. But yeah, so we just assume that the way things have been are the most optimized way they can be. I think one of the best ways to get leaders in particular to realize the upside of these changes is every company, no matter what they sell, is definitely aware of trying to gain new customers. That as certain groups of customers are aging out or even dying out as they get older, you need to always be replenishing and inviting new people into your brand. Young people are not having it. They are not having this old school way of doing work. And so in order to future-proof your own company, whether that's your employees attracting young talent or your consumers bringing new buyers into whatever it is you're selling, you absolutely must be modeling the times. And the times are not the old school way of doing business. So I feel like there's a part of the question I didn't answer. Yeah, I think it was more to how do you really think about the approach to continue pushing forward. You know, why is the status quo not the way? I mean, I even, I think about my 15 year old daughter. And when I ask her, one of my favorite questions to ask at the dinner table is what's your favorite topic of conversation right now? And her answer the other night was representation in advertising. And that blew me It blew me away. Like, why is a 15-year-old talking with her pals and not only talking, but her favorite thing to talk about is analyzing representation in advertising. And I think it really does point to this sea change in terms of people, our future workforce. They want to be heard. They want to be seen and they want their workplace to reflect their country. So just curious, like how you keep talking about that. Yeah. You know, they're demanding. There was a quote I saw recently. I think it was from my friend Natalie Molina Nino that said, This new group, they're demanding to be known, not just seen or heard, but known, understood, centered. And so I love that your daughter and her friends are talking about that. I actually would love to meet her and tell her about the world of advertising. We might need her. Let's acknowledge that this is your daughter, Maria. So anybody listening who's feeling bad about whatever, when they ask their kid that question, and the answer is not anything anything close to as sophisticated as what your daughter is saying. Please, listeners, do not feel bad. Your kid is normal. Yeah, let me let me just weigh in with my 10-year-old son's answer. And his answer was, we are loving talking about the different sounds that farts make. So let's just balance out what the answers were. You know, we don't always share all the answers. So there you go. There's a bit of levity and vulnerability. Kat, you said something on the panel, and I'm I want Sean to actually answer this too, because which isn't fair, but you said something that really stuck with me and has been in my brain. You said when choices are easy, life is hard. And when choices are hard, life is easy. Can you talk about that as it relates to this effort around 
all the work that the three of us are trying to do day in, day out in terms of changing the way, really the shift in our workplace toward workplace equity. Yeah. The expression is hard choices, easy life, easy choices, hard life. And I think it transcends business. It goes into every sector of society. When you allow things to just go unaddressed and you really don't, that's the easy choice, meaning you're not addressing it. You're not trying to change it or optimize it or wrangle with it. The outcome is not good. Look at nature. I mean, I love biomimicry. Look at nature. If you spend even a day at the ocean or in a forest, you will, everywhere you look, you will realize that nature does not tolerate stagnation. Everything is in a chain, in a state of morphing and growing and shedding leaves. And, and we are part of that cycle. And so if you make some hard choices, which is how do I need to evolve in this moment? How does our creative culture need to be constantly shedding, optimizing? People want one and done, and that's not the way of the world. And so I think part of my job truly has been sitting with CEOs and normalizing for them that this is an ongoing effort, that if it feels like you're doing it wrong, it probably means you're doing it right because it's awkward and it's uncertain and it's messy and it's deeply human. And so if you can get past that feeling of like, I don't really know what I'm doing and I might offend someone and I'm not sure how long this is going to take and just dive into the belief that working on and working with people that you spend your livelihood with and asking what they want and working together and asking questions and constantly revisiting. There's so much upside on the other side of that, but we don't talk about that. We just, we shut down. That's too hard. So I'm just going to stick with the status quo. There's that word again. We had these t-shirts made a few years ago at our conference that said status quote. And those were my, probably my favorite t-shirts because I just love that refusal to accept the easy choice and to always be asking what could be better, what could fit better for everyone. I don't know why I'm just a person that I like that. That doesn't make me feel scared. It makes me feel excited. And some people I understand they're more risk averse. They like things to not change, but we need people in leadership that have the bravery and the curiosity to be constantly asking those questions and driving things forward. I don't have much to add to that, Ray. I think Kat is going to say I have a better answer than nine times out of nine times, 10 times out of 10 times, whatever the saying is on that, a question like that. But I mean, my mind goes to a completely different place on that question, which I'm not going to take us there around just survival and having the privilege of even being able to take time and to actually weigh different decisions versus, all right, I have to do this just to, to stay alive. I think the thing that I would add, though, Kat, is that sometimes choosing to take a harder path or to do something that might be a bit slower initially is going to ultimately lead to and yield to better results, right? When we talk about diversity within companies, one of the reasons I think that companies often struggle with successfully building diverse teams is because there is friction that comes with diversity when you have different opinions that you have to learn how to navigate and you have to learn how to yield as a tool in, in your favor. And I think many times folks avoid going down that route of hiring the person who has opinions different, they're very different than yours or who has a very different life experience because you're already doing something very hard and building a, a business, definitely at the early stages, uh, but even you know a mature business. And so folks take those shortcuts that lead to short-term, easy life, but long-term, they're not going to lead to great life. 
in terms of how your business performs. So I think we're, we're totally in line. The only thing I would add is, is speed as a factor. Mm. I'm so glad you said that, Sean, because I feel like the discomfort of having hard conversations at work and having people maybe speaking up about things that they don't like, we have got to start embracing that as leadership material. And I remember sitting at a dinner with a CEO in New York a few years ago, and he was telling me about some courageous conversations they scheduled inside their workforce around race and everything he was telling me, I I just loved and thought necessary, wonderful, exactly right. And then at the end, he turned to me and he said, but Kat, 30% of the people in our exit survey said they thought we went too far. And I said, that's exactly where you want to be exactly where you want to be. If 0% of people felt it was uncomfortable, then why it's not courageous and why even have it? And so we have to start actually seeing that as a mark of relevance, that people being uncomfortable and having to take a break and come back and retool and rethink, that's the desired outcome of this curriculum, that people don't see that as a failure. They see it as evolution. I mean, a term I'm really big on right now is cultural competency. And we talk about so many different competencies at work and make sure our people are skilled and ready for the marketplace. But This is one of those, being culturally attuned into what it's like for people that don't look like you at work and in the world at large. That is a leadership quality that you need to work on and you should feel pride in working on. So I love this conversation. You started dropping some percentages there and the percentage that you actually shared that we had an incorrect number during pre-production here, but you've gone from 3% of creative directors being, being women to now 29% in the 12 years since you run the organization. My question, where do we ultimately want to take this? What's going to be key to getting there? And what's the biggest challenge that you foresee to get into that ultimate goal? Yeah, I mean, 3% just celebrated our 10th anniversary. Last fall, we had an event in Atlanta, and we also delivered it virtually. And I gave a lot of thought to that exact question, Sean, about like, what does the next decade look like? And we spent the better part of the second day of the conference in these facilitated idea sessions around the four isms. And those are racism, sexism, ableism, and ageism. And the morning of the second day, we had a keynote speaker on each of those talking about in a very first person, personal voice, how that issue had presented in their life. And it was incredible, these speakers. And then the audience got to decide which one of these issues do I want to spend two hours brainstorming with other conference attendees on. And we're just about to publish the results of all of that crowdsourced wisdom. So what's next for 3% is looking at these really systemic, long-standing issues that prevent us from getting to 50%, which is, of course, where we should be. And then if you look within that, how many of those female advertising creative directors are Black women? How many of them are over the age of 50? I mean, advertising eats its old. And so really looking at like who's still not represented, even if we get to representation. And that's why numbers are so tricky. I care much more when we do culture consulting in what's called the net promoter score. Would you tell someone to come work at your company? And how your Black employees answer that, how your LGBTQ employees answer that is very, very telling about, is this a place that feels like home? Is this a place where I can contribute at the highest levels? And just looking at numbers and representation, I mean, you can change your headcount overnight and think, oh, 
done, solved. But if if the people you've invited in are stepping into a culture that was not built for them and by them, I would argue you've done more harm than good. And so this is the next level of conversation, which will take more than 10 more years. But it's only through committing to this and seeing the upside of this that we really can secure a better future for our kids and grandkids. That's an amazing answer given where we started this conversation around intersectionality and the fact that you had folks introducing the concept to you and telling you you needed to be concerned about that for now your focus is for the organization for the next 10 years to be, I mean, that was 100% intersectionality we just talked about in that answer. So that's, that's amazing from you as a leader. Thanks for sharing. Sure. just say my last question is around this passion you have for the concept of belonging. So you've said that you believe, and I'll quote you, the future belongs to the ancient premise of belonging. And I think, you know, we've talked a little bit about how culture and creativity are so linked. And so for advertising, obviously that's so critical, but really for all companies, I mean, for tech innovation and creativity, it's really centered on can you bring that creativity to bear because you feel you belong? You feel you're in a place where you can participate fully. And I think for us in particular, Kat, as white women, we don't necessarily understand because we're still coming to the table with so much privilege. We're still coming to the table without a deep empathy in that we may be able to see what's happening to others or to have shared experiences in terms of what folks tell us, but we've never experienced it ourselves to that degree. And so how do we as leaders really push for this true belonging when we haven't lived it, right? Like, let's just be honest. We have privilege that a lot of our counterparts who are experiencing different center points of this intersectionality, they they haven't had the privilege to walk in and be accepted immediately. So how do you think about that as you push forward the different engagements you do around culture and belonging from your perspective as a white woman and a leader and someone that's trying to guide companies in the right direction? I think one of the most important things that that's happened for me is that my friend set and my colleague set is totally intersectional. And so I have really trusted close relationships with people who don't look like me. And I remember one of those people who's a Middle Eastern woman, we would be in meetings together and she would tell me when we were leaving to go back to the hotel or wherever in New York, did you notice that they wouldn't make eye contact with me? They only wanted to look at you and they only wanted to talk to you and they directed all the questions to you. I hadn't noticed that, shame on me. But I had a trusted relationship with her where she drew it to my attention. And then I, going forward, set up the meetings and set up particular ways of directing things and spotlighting her to try to offset that. And so I think you're right that we don't know what we haven't experienced, but that doesn't let us off the hook to not have deep, trusted relationships with people and to really inquire gently to them and also to ask them, how can I show up for you in a way that feels good to you? I mean, to not just come in and kind of take over and say, well, this is how we're going to fix that. But to say, what can I do? What can we do as a team in the next meeting to offset that? I think, you know, men can do this with women as well. I mean, the fact that I shared how the men were shocked at the results of the sexual harassment study and women weren't at all. That's a great example of men and women not really talking very openly. It's like they're working at the same company, but it's a completely different lived experience. And so these open lines of communication, deep trust and friendships, if you have 
only friends that look like you or went to the kinds of schools that you attended or live in the same zip code. I mean, I just think you're, first of all, you're missing out on so much in life. And secondly, you're not going to be able to be a great ally or advocate or co-conspirator with others to make a better workplace. You really have to try to broaden the circle of people you're meeting and earn their trust. That's another thing. You know, when that person told me this is becoming a white woman's conference, it took us a while to change that. And I definitely could put a lot of people on my stage that didn't look like the status quo and did and continue to, but I didn't have a lot of control over who was in the audience, who was buying tickets, who was showing up. And that was something that I thought about a lot. And then finally I did something that seemed very small, but it made an enormous difference. And it was in the ticket buying path when people are actually registering their guests. I wrote a short blurb of copy that other conferences have picked up, and I invite everyone to use it, that said something like, as you are determining the guests you are bringing to this conference, we really encourage you to think beyond the usual suspects. Bring a true cross-section of your company. Bring clients, bring men, bring older people, bring a real representation, and that you will get more from the conference as a result. And that worked. I mean, but we had to keep saying you belong. There's that word again. You belong here. This isn't just for one. It's not just for creative leaders currently. It's for anyone that cares about this issue, cares about innovation, has appetite and enthusiasm for building better workforces. And so that's kind of what it takes. There's so much conversation needed in these issues. And I feel like the promise of technology is always to like make us not have to talk to each other and to try to flatten things and streamline things. And in some situations, that's great. But when it comes to human things and belonging and cultures, we have to talk to each other and we have to be willing to put our foot in our mouth sometimes. It's the only way forward. Thank you for that. Sean, what do you think? Any last questions? I think there's a lot of questions. Might be need to be a part two for this one because we're Ben is pulling his hair out right now. He thought we're we're 10 minutes over. <laughs> Just thank you, Kat. Thanks for the work that you're leading and looking forward to future collaboration and, and following your work and excited to have met you. Yeah, thank you so much. Yes, well, keep up your great work and uh, we can continue the conversation whenever you'd like. Okay, thanks all. 